Walks were probably the highlight of my 40, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> they were the best. Um, I've had to talk about this subject so many times, but like this seems like a different group than I'm used to, because often it's a bunch of people who are angry about the church's stance on this issue. Um, and so my focus is actually mostly, there's going to be a lot on the biology. I'm a science background, that's why I like, care about it, just that we need to understand the church's stance, especially when there's the argument of, well, if they're born this way, right, then how can God blame them or how can God be upset with them is like the most commonly, um, it's, it's the, the, the most that comes out. And it's very, very funny to me to see educated people fall into that. Um, I don't know what is, I don't know American politics at all, but some dude that is running against Hillary Clinton, that's bright and did some kind of surgery, I don't know his name. Um, the the media flipped on him after loving him because he made the comment that well if homosexuals are born that way then why is it that when they go to prison not, not when they where people who identify as heterosexual and have lived heterosexual lives after going to prison um, some of them um, have homosexual tendencies and so what he was trying to say which was shot down which was there's obviously a nurture aspect here because if they're born that way this should never have been an issue right and so but that was shot down right away. And I think there's a reason why the media is doing that, but we'll, we'll come to that. But before getting into all of that, um, and Lady Gaga, of course, like, sings her song, I was born this way or something like that. I haven't heard the song, but I saw the pictures. Um, <laughs> it was disturbing. Um, so I'm gonna do a very lightning breeze through, like, basic Orthodox theology, okay, about, um, our origins, okay, and what the fall means, because this is the context of everything that we understand in this world, right? Is that God, who existed in and of himself, who did not need to create, created, right? Nothing was the motivation for this other than love. He was not insufficient, right? He did not need people to praise him. He did not need people to serve him. He, don't, he did not need that. If he did, he's not God, because he's incomplete, right? So... Out of only the goodness of his heart, that's why we call him the lover of mankind, the lover of humanity, or the lover of man, right? He chose to create, and he gave man the world, right? He created all, all things in the earth for man, and even allowed him dominion over the plants and the fields and the animals. So, the desire from man was relationship, okay? But there's also this, this fundamental part of orthodox spirituality, which is that he made us in his own image and likeness. This is the unique gift to humanity. Regardless of what, how man came to be, whether through spontaneous formation, whether through evolution, whether through whatever it is that we waste our time discussing about, the dust of the earth, the most important part that the fathers focus on is what made man man is the image and likeness. Okay, this is what unique, even the angels do not have this. And why this matters is because we were given an identity. Okay, we were given this thing that we were made to be. In the same sense that nobody goes out into the fields, cuts down trees for the sake of cutting down trees. Right? Like no one's going to pat themselves on the back for doing this random act. They're going to cut down trees because they want to build a table, because they want to light a fire, because they want to make something. But there's a purpose behind it. It's not random. We were not created randomly. Okay? So this image and likeness is his very self. Right? That's why we were why we sing in the Tizbaha, he he took what is ours and gave us what is his, right? Is that we were meant to be exactly like him, holy, perfect, right? And all the things that we identify are sin, okay? I hope that we are no longer in the stage of life we do as we're kids and it's helpful, like to see as sin as this regulatory thing. 
But hopefully at this point, you guys are beyond that. Where sin is simply anything that falls short of the image and likeness. Okay? It's doing anything that disrupts the perfect functioning of this thing. Okay? So if you can think of, like, your car, if you were to put in, like, diesel and it's not supposed to have diesel, you're, you're ruining the car. It fell short. You, this thing can't run the way it was supposed to because you put the wrong thing in. That is what sin is. We're doing something that stops it from its proper functioning. So that is, sin is the opposite of holiness, right? Because holiness is who we were supposed to be. So this is what we are supposed to continually be trying to recover, is our image and likeness. Unfortunately, some sins get trendy, and when they get trendy, they get um, confused for what things ought to be. So the analogy that I use a lot in, in talks is if you think of a microphone, a microphone was made to amplify sound. That was what it was made for. I could, if I like, take gum, shove it on the top of it, and call it my gum holder. And I could convince the people in the room that they should all take their gum and shove it on the microphone and that this is now an incredible thing called the gum holder and I could market it. However, underneath all of the gum is still a microphone. That was what it was supposed to be. Even if decades later people have forgotten what the microphone is, it doesn't matter. It was still a microphone. Hopefully somewhere there's a memory of what it was, right? But that's what it actually was. So the sin is like, is like the gum. Right? And what we're continually striving to do is to remove these layers of gum, that's repentance, okay? to recover our identity, which is the image and likeness. And this is why God gave the law in the Old Testament, was not to give them random rules. The law was to remind them of what it means to be perfect. It wasn't arbitrary. It was, these are the things that I am. Right? That's his name. Right? These are the things that I am. And so you were made to be exactly like me, so you need to recover this image of I am. Okay? And that's why these things were to steer the people, to keep them the knowledge of perfection and the knowledge of holiness in their hearts. That's why St. Paul says the law was given for us as a tutor. Right? It was given to us as this measuring stick. Because if you have a straight line, only in having the existence of a straight line can you tell that you've gone astray from something straight. Because otherwise you have no reference point. But the law gave us the reference point for holiness, and then Christ came to completely renew and transfigure us. But our spiritual life is about recovering the identity received in baptism, which was the renewal of our nature, right? It was the renewal of us becoming the image and likeness. That's what's so imperative. So that's the quick rundown on, on that, okay? Now, the fall was huge, obviously, right? Because what we introduced into, the, into, into our lives was disease, Right? We brought spiritual disease into us. And that's why death was a result. Right? And this was the fall of all of creation. We put stuff in that shouldn't be there. The minute you cut yourself, you now have to heal. This will never be what it was. Even if you can't see the scar anymore, something happened, and there's now a slow decay. That's what happened to the world. That happens to man. So all of the things we see in the world today are in some form a result of the fall. Everything that we see in the world is a result of wrong decisions that we make, either individually or collectively, intentionally, unintentionally, knowingly or unknowingly, okay, is the reason why the world is not functioning properly. Okay, so that's the context and the background. So let's bring it back to this specific topic. And I don't like talking about homosexuality that much because it's, it's literally just another issue. Um, it's just, it happens to be a popular one today. Um, but we, it's just one among many things that fall short of perfection, right? Like that's simply all it is. 
So everyone says, okay, if I was born this way, why am I being blamed? That's not fair. Um, and I want us to dis distinguish, as we speak, between two things. Celebrating a disease, okay, and victimizing a victim, okay? Because these are the two extremes that we see. And we don't want to be in any of these. So I'm using the word disease. I know that many people find this offensive, but... Disease is simply a disorder of structure or function in a human. That's all it is, right? There shouldn't be any, like, negative uh, connotation of that. Socially, there happens to be. So if you want instead, we can say that it is a, a genetic mutation or variation. Um, but really, that's all a disease means. So when I'm saying disease, I'm not saying it as in, here's these disgusting disease people who have this sin that they're dealing with. Rather, what I'm saying is, no, there's something that has gone wrong, possibly, when we discuss the genetics of it. And also that we're all diseased, right? Like sin in general is disease, and all of us are diseased. Um, so the first question then is, where does disease come from? Because I want to deal specifically with biological at the beginning, because this is the biggest issue right now. Uh, why is there disease? Usually diseases which are which is a DNA something has gone wrong in transcription either because of radiation might be the cause and is exposure to something that compromises the genes integrity um, If the gene gets morphed or modified in some way Then it leads to a different kind of expression of that gene. I don't know how many of you guys are science students here Are you all science people or okay? Because if I'm wasting your time, then I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So th this is what happens, right? So if your gene is supposed to tell you to act in this way, anything that's messed up that gene will make it act in a funny way or a different way. It might make it make too much. It might make it make too little. It might make it not do anything at all, right? Like there's different things that could happen when that happens. But these exposures can come from so many sources. Like we said, voluntary and voluntary. So if we pollute the world, for example, there's going to be consequences on genetics, right? If radiation increases because we have put a hole in the ozone, well, sorry, dudes, like, that's going to happen, right? Like, we, we were responsible. Um, like, cancer. Like, our pollution, for example, has caused us to see an, a huge increase um, in cancer, more than we've ever seen before. But why is there disease in the world in general? It comes back to the garden, right? It goes back to this whole concept of doing something to the body, to the spirit, to the world that was never meant to be there. Because God had made the world in a perfect balance, and he gave us the complete and total freedom to do with it as we pleased. Um, so when we sin, as we said earlier, we chose to introduce something foreign, we introduced um, disease, and the whole world fell. We took knowledge, okay, that day, um, that we didn't know how to deal with yet. Um, and that was the issue. In the same way that we don't let a kid drive a car when he's 12, it's not because driving is a sin, right? It's just simply not the right time. Because many of the fathers say we would have eventually ate from the tree. Um, that it wasn't that the tree was intrinsically evil. It was taking it at the wrong time. Um, and I'm not also saying that everything in the world happened willfully, right? Sometimes we're behaving in a certain way that we don't realize causes harm, right? So we started creating tires because it was great for cars and didn't realize, oh, well, we don't know where to put these, right? We can't burn them. We can't do stuff. There's things that we didn't do on purpose. But God told us, subdue the earth. This is yours. Take it over. Fix it. Do it. Like, do with it as you please. So for the purpose of understanding things better, let's discuss the various diseases, how we get them, so that we can understand this concept of blame, right? Because the question is, I was born this way, how do you blame me? So first we need to distinguish causality, okay, versus predispositions, okay? Because not all genetic malfunctions cause a disease per se. 
um, some genetic factors just simply predispose people to things. For example, we know that there are people who are genetically predisposed toward addiction. Okay? Um, and this is other people that you'll hear psychologists and scientists calling addictive personalities, right? Where they're wired in a certain way where for some reason they are more likely to be addicted to things than to others. Um, they seem to have a genetic makeup that makes them more likely to be dependent on a substance. Where there'll be three people sitting at a table, three, all three of them drank the same amount of alcohol, only one of them doesn't know how to stop, right? Whereas the other two were able to have one and say, I'm done. Where the other guy's like, I can't, and needs it, and craves it, and looks forward to it. We know that this exists. Um, so, actually, I also remember being taught in my intro psych class years ago um, that there are males born with a higher propensity towards um, physical aggression and violence um, because of factors during pregnancy and or genes. Um, but both of these things were out of his control, but these effects are possible um, for the person. In this kind of aberration, I'm going to start using the word aberration, where something went wrong, like there's an aberrant behavior from what was intended, um, the person had no say in how he or she was born, um, but can end up with problems that he or she finds very difficult and are different from the majority of society. We'll come back to this, but that's predisposition, okay? Which is different from causality, okay? Causality is when there's a genetic aberration that makes something happen. Not makes it possible, it makes it happen. Like where this gene means this person will have these things. So many things you already know are genetically determined, your hair, your gender, all those things, right? You didn't have a say in that. Um, but there's also genetics that cause, cause cystic fibrosis, okay? Many Egyptians have G6PD deficiency. Probably something most of you haven't heard of, but we almost all have it, but we eat food anyway. Um, autoimmune diseases, certain autoimmune diseases, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, diabetes type 1, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of these things that are either strongly or entirely associated with genetics, okay? Like, so these are not, like, there's nothing shocking about this. Um, and there are some conditions which certain controls can help prevent the disease from developing, um, because there are environmental factors, and we're going to get into nature and nurture in a second. But there are certain people with genes that will inevitably cause them to have something happen, okay? And it is not in their control, and we do need to acknowledge this. Now, we talked about predisposition and causality, and now we need to talk about the other two major things, which are nature and nurture, okay? Genetics is the nature part, right? Um, genetics play a role in diseases, sometimes 100%, sometimes less. And this is the differentiation. Most of you guys have probably run across the nature nurture thing in some form or other in your classes. Um, so take, for example, the predisposition to addiction. A person who has a predisposition to addiction actually doesn't know that he has this, this wiring, right? The only thing that allows him to discover it is exposure, right? Is for him to have tried that substance and discover that he is unable to stop using it. But without this exposure, which is nurture, okay, this is, nurture is anything that is non-biological, anything that is non-genetic, whether it's their society, their friends, their people, their culture, um, the, like anything, like literally anything you can think of that is not biological, that is nurture, okay? So this person without the nurture aspect wouldn't realize that he had a, a nature issue, right? He wouldn't know that he has a, an issue um, of addiction and he wouldn't know that, the gen that his genetics affect him. If you want to think of this in a bigger sense, 
our interaction with society and the world around us actually strongly influence us and who we become and how we behave. Right? This is this is a fact. Um, imagine a world, for example, where social drinking and recreational drugs didn't exist, period. It would be a very different world, right? But once it has been embraced, it becomes part of culture. That part of culture has affected how kids behave. It affects how they perform in school. It affects their career. Like, it affects so many aspects, which in turn affects a whole society. Imagine, for example, if someone grew up in an environment where all they did is ride horses and cut down trees. Um, they might never know that they actually have a gift in engineering. They never might not ever have thought this idea of like, I could design a plane, right? Or I could try and figure out how this works because they've never been in an environment to realize that they're gifted in this um, or that they have a propensity towards it. Um, even though that person might have a natural adeptness um, in one of those things. Um, so those are personality examples, but there are also natural factors that can influence genetic diseases as well. Um, so exposure to certain environmental factors can facilitate the expression of an aberrant gene. For example, um, some people speculate right now, it's still, it's still, there's literature about it, but it's not a proven thing, that exposure to certain chemical toxins might be what triggers Parkinson's to be activated, right? So like it was a genetic thing that existed in them, that a nature aspect that they were exposed to made the nature part get expressed. Okay, so these two factors, nature and nurture, are married to one another. Now, if we want to know if something is totally nature, we have a very simple test. Look at identical twins. Okay, because their genes are identical. That's why they're identical twins. And if we see that both twins have the exact same um, expression of the, of the gene, then we can relatively safely conclude this is a purely nature issue. If they don't, one does and the other doesn't, we can't say there's no genetics, but all we can say is it is not 100% genetic, it is not 100% causal. It could be a predisposition. That's all we can derive from it. We can't say much more. And that's important because in dealing with homosexuality, the identical twin studies have not shown that both end up homosexual, which indicates that it is not something that is causal, right? Predisposition, maybe. Causal, no, right? No matter how much people are, want to soup that up, I was born this way, sorry, the, the science isn't saying that. In fact, if it was saying that, there wouldn't be controversy. It would have been dealt with a long time ago because it had been a very straightforward thing. And so we have a problem where we're having a mixture of culture and morality, combating one another and using science for or against whatever arguments that they want to make. But then here's the issue. Today there are certain things that we say are genetic, but we tell people that they should celebrate it. Right? Like, celebrate Gay Pride Week. Um, I'm not sure how sensical or rational that is. Like, I, I really don't, on an intellectual or even as a scientific level, understand this. If we say that something is a genetic aberration, what is there to celebrate? Right? Like, why are we celebrating this? The person didn't even do anything astounding. You're saying they're born that way. So, like, like, are we saying, good job, you're gay? Right? Are we saying, good job, you have Parkinson's? Right? This is a very bizarre thought to have. Especially because, um, I don't know how many of you have studied evolution. When we talk about genetic mutation in, in evolution, it's always neutral. Right? We just say, this was what happened. <laughs> And this is what it caused. But we don't say, oh, this was good or this was bad. We say, this is what happened. 
right? And what does that cause? So there is no sense in celebrating a genetic mutation. Um, and why is it saying that somebody was meant to be that way? If it might have been a simple coding mistake. Um, because evolution admits that exposure and various factors affect the evolution of a thing, right? Um, whether positive or negative. So if it was an aberration, do we celebrate this? Like, and, and really, like, I really wonder, why don't we celebrate G6PD deficiency? Why don't we celebrate Parkinson's? Why don't we celebrate diabetes? We don't. We celebrate the people. We encourage the people, but we don't celebrate the, the, the challenge, right? We encourage them. We praise them for how they're dealing with their challenge, but we don't celebrate the disease. We don't celebrate the aberration. So then we come to the question of, then, whose fault is it? And if we're going to play the blame game, um, then a lot of this, like we said at the very beginning, is a result of the free will of humanity. It goes back to the garden, where everything went wrong. However, this whole fault thing is totally relevant. Like, I don't really understand why we're having a debate about whose fault um, it is. Because we have no control in it. God isn't punishing somebody. Um, we simply have consequences from our choices, collectively and individually. If a mom chooses to do drugs when she's pregnant, that poor child is probably going to be born addicted and with deformations. Was God punishing the kid? Absolutely not. Was God punishing the mother for her sins by giving her a deformed child? Absolutely not. Was God's will that this baby be born? Absolutely not. So there's no point in having a useless discussion about blame when there isn't a blame to push. Okay? We make decisions. Decisions have consequences, individually and collectively. Um, now let's get biblical, right? We're, we're aware of the story of the man born blind. The man was born blind, okay? The dude has no eyes. And the disciples very presumptuously, the same way we do today, inquire, is this the parent's sin or is it the kid's? Like, like as though they're very, like, sophisticated. Um, like, the few things they know how to talk about. So, it was an ignorant um, inquiry. Um, and not only did, did they ask the question, like a bad question, but the, the question intrinsically built into it the blame of like obviously someone messed up. So otherwise this kid wouldn't have this. And the Lord's response was, has nothing to do with their sins or his sins. And he said that he would be glorified in it. And he didn't say, I made him this way to be glorified in him. Right? Because that would be problematic too. Then people would be like, aha, so then God made them gay to be glorified in it. And therefore we're all waiting for the day where they're magically not. Like, that is not what he said either. Now, what was, what was it that brought the glory of God about it? It was the healing of the man born blind. It was not a celebration of his blindness. Okay? It was that he recovered from this thing that he had been born with. The God, God didn't say, blessed are you blind man, you want to rejoice that you have blindness. Right? He said, now you are healed, go and sin no more. Actually, I don't even remember if he said go and sin no more in that particular situation to check it. He took his weakness and he fixed it. This is what we're celebrating. Is God took the illness of humanity and transfigured it. Now, this sounds nice and simple, but I have another question. Did the Lord heal every single living blind person at the time that he was alive? No, he didn't. Okay. Because sometimes people say, well, then what happens if they're never healed? Well, Christ didn't heal everybody that was alive at the time. There's a lot that goes into healing, and it doesn't mean that everybody is going to be healed. Why did he choose to heal this particular man? I have no idea. I can't speak for Christ. I have no idea why this man was healed and why not someone else. 
but this was a work of God's grace. I don't think anybody knows. We can meditate on different possibilities, but we can appreciate that it happened because of the lessons we can draw from it, but we don't know why God's grace worked with this person in this particular way. We don't know. Um, but be careful not to assume that nobody else received a different grace. We don't know how God's grace works. Um, the point is that he did it. He expressed that it had nothing to do with sin. The solution was to heal it, but not to encourage someone to wallow in it. That was not his solution. So let's look again at modern society and look at the absurdity of this celebration. Someone who has a genetic predisposition to addiction is not encouraged to celebrate addiction, right? We know that there are people who have a predisposition to addiction, but we don't as a society tell them, you know what, this is great. You were born that way. Celebrate it. You should get totally wasted whenever you feel like it. And you should get totally high because you were wired that way and this is great. We'll supply you with the drugs. Instead, we say, sorry, it sucks to be you, right? It does. Um, however, here's what we're going to do to help you. Okay, we're going to try and have these programs for you. We're going to have these support systems for you. We are going to do genetic research to see if there's a way that we can deal with it. We're going to find out whatever it is that we're able to do to try and help this whole situation for you and everyone else we're going to do. But on your part, okay, you have to fight a little bit. It isn't okay for you to go around and get wasted all the time or to be addicted to drugs. It's bad for you. It is bad for you as a human being. We recognize that for you it is harder than it is for everybody else, and that that was of no fault of your own. However, it is still not okay for you to engage yourself and indulge in this. This is what we say to people who have predisposition towards addictions already as a society, right? We don't tell them anything different from that. So it's very interesting to me that we would selectively choose one mutation that we're going to celebrate, and whereas the other ones, we tell them, no, 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 this is not good. Um, and so what we also need to understand um, is that these people who are suffering from this are going to find emotional happiness in fulfilling what is their natural disposition, okay? If you understand what I'm saying. To them, because they're born this way, to them it is natural, right? And their sensual happiness, like through the five senses, is most fulfilled in fulfilling what they're craving. We need to also understand that that there is a psychological benefit to them that they feel happier in the secular sense when they do this. And we need to get that because that is a big struggle because we are asking them to go against what is their natural inclination. And that is not easy. That is not easy on either. That's something we don't want to go on two different extremes because we don't want to celebrate the disease, okay? And on the other side, we don't want to pretend that this person is to blame when they're not. Okay, assuming that there's a predisposition. They didn't ask for the predisposition. Tell me which gay person, especially in the early 90s, I mean, now it's kind of cool to be gay, but in the 90s, okay, who would want to be gay? Who would want to be able to, like, feel like the church is going to cast them out, their parents are going to refuse to talk to them, their friends will have nothing to do with them? Like, who, who wants that? Like, I cannot accept that anybody of sound mind would desire that. Right? So that's what I'm saying. That don't ever go to the other extreme right, of blaming people for what is natural to them. Okay? Because they did get born with some wiring that does it. But, so let's not be misguided in our, in our understanding. But we have to still look towards what is right. I'm going to come back to nurture for a second. Because we sometimes forget about our collective responsibility towards one another in society. Especially in a society that says, do whatever makes you feel good. 
right, is that we actually have a collective responsibility. We were called to live in community, right? God created a community. If it was, if God wanted man to live alone in relationship with him, he wouldn't create Eve, right? He could have trained Adam to just chill with him and be like, you don't need Eve. You're cool, <laughs> right? But instead he was like, no, it is not good for man to be alone, right? And created the first community, right? And then told them to be fruitful and multiply. And that instilled a sense of family, right? Because now it's their own children. So there's a sense of communal responsibility of making our decisions. And what we normalize has long-term effects on society at large. So we are affecting both very strongly, both the nature and the nurture aspects of living. Um, and sometimes we get pulled into strong social movements that might actually be nonsensical at best or hazardous at worst. Okay, because if we encourage the celebration of disease, then we forget what the cause of the disease was because we're busy shifting our focus. Um, we can encourage behaviors that are not necessarily healthy for society in whatever way, all in the guise of pretending to show love and support. Um, the love and support should not be to praise a disease, but to help a person. But if our nurturing environment, we start to vote disease as celebratory, then what are we really saying? Okay, imagine if right now, we legalize every like substance, like not just the weed. The next generation of kids are going to grow up with that as a norm. We've done that to them, right? And if we find out that there's long-term consequences, and not find out, we already know that there will be. Okay, but let's when we see it, what are we going to do? Oh, oops, sorry. Like your grandfather hippies decided that was a good thing for you, but that's what we've done, right? Effectively, that's what we've done. So we have to understand that we actively can play a role in nurture if we intentionally succumb to social norms that are totally unacceptable, right? Or that go against who we were meant to be, this image and likeness concept. We must always go back towards that as our golden standard, not what everybody else is saying. So warfare, okay? So we've talked about the biology, okay? The self others here is the nurture aspect predominantly. That's why I have nurture under it. So we've done the nature nurture, but we also need to take into account warfare since we're Christians, okay? Um, if you believe that there's a God, then you also know that there's a devil. Um, and if you don't believe in the devil's existence or his mission, then that's your choice, but you're not orthodox. Um, but the devil does have an influence on your body. Because in more than one of, the Lord, one of our Lord's exorcisms, it would be written that the man had an evil spirit within him and could not speak or could not hear. He had some kind of physical ailment that once the person had been exercised of the, of the devil, the person was whole again and was able to function um, with hearing and speaking, which shows that indeed this demonic spirit had this ability. So the devil is able to affect your physical health. Uh, I'm not saying he's always doing that. I'm just saying that it is something that he can do. Um, so sometimes the devil does have a role in things. And if we celebrate his work, <laughs> which is what we're doing, um, or don't recognize something as a warfare, then we might actually be normalizing his work and encouraging him to continue his work among us. And this is very important too. Um, and sometimes the devil's work is not going to be this direct thing, but it might also be him working coupled with the natural or genetic difficulty of other kinds. So he might work through the nurture part to help bring out the nature part. Um, and so we have to be able to discern these things. This is part of spiritual health, and whether you know it or not, your physical and spiritual health are intrinsically linked. Um, because there's no life to the body without your spirit, and there's no place for your, your spirit without your body. The two are one. Like they, they, they live with each other. 
right? And that's why even in the judgment, we rise, as St. Paul says, because we did all of it together. Body, soul, and spirit did it together, right? There was no one person. So we've got to be very, very careful with this whole demonic element or the, the warfare element, because I think we do... We really undermine this one, and I think we're often embarrassed about it as Christians because we don't want to be seen as superstitious, right? Of like, no. But to bring back to the nature thing, for, ex for example, I wondered for a long time, like, well, why is it that we're seeing so much homosexuality right now, like more than we were seeing 30 years ago or even 20 years ago? And to me, is that, okay, if there's a predisposition, like we said with the drug thing, is that exposure is needed for this thing to be activated. What has the devil worked so incredibly well on doing for the last 20 years? Hypersexualizing all of society. So exposure does happen from an exceptionally young age. Children are being exposed to pornography. I think the average age of exposure to pornography now is grade five, um, if I'm not mistaken. So everyone is seeing these images in front of them. Whereas 40, 50 years ago, nobody did anything sexual in public, right? The most that anyone ever did and it brought attention to them was hold hands. Right? In movies, anytime they approached the bedroom, it was like, pan out. Right? Like in Egypt, things were, were cut. Right? They'd be like, and it's just a cult. Um, which means, like, any sexual thing, the Egyptian government or filtering system, whatever they were called, they removed. Right? So that the people were not seeing images that would be implanted in their heads. And so, being overly exposed, which was the devil's strong work among us, I think has brought out the expression of this gene. Because the people are being put in the environment in which that expresses itself. So this is why we do need to understand that. And the devil's going to play a role in that, being like, well, what's so bad about this? Just like you did with Eve. What's the real big deal if you do this? Why are you so worried about this? And inspiring doubt. So, the question of whose fault is it? Totally irrelevant. Okay? Like, really. Because it's a state of being, it's a condition, and there's no reason to discuss blame because nobody is being blamed. Okay, like, like there, there isn't one. And if there are Christians blaming homosexuals, then they're wrong. Okay, they can't blame them for like their, their, their warfare. They can be held accountable for how they deal with their warfare in the same way that all of us should be. Right? Because all of us should be held accountable. But our Lord never convicted people coming to Him to be healed. Never. There's not a single time. So even when the cause of disease was because of sin, he didn't turn them down. Like there are people who came to him where he said, go and sin no more because it was their sin. And he never said, no, 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 you did one, two, three, four, five, unless you stop, blah, 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 I'm not talking to you and like I'm going to chill with my cool friends, right? Instead, he was like everybody received healing who came to him in good faith. He simply told him, go and sin no more. When did our Lord ever convict a sinner? Like, if you can think of one, like, please let me know. I can't think of any. Not, this, not even the woman caught in adultery. She's caught red-handed, okay? Like, she didn't even come to him because she was sorry. She was forced in front of him because they wanted to kill her, okay? And even her, he defended, said, I won't accuse you, and said, go and sin no more. So let's drop the blame game, but let's also not falsely celebrate, okay? We don't victimize the victim, okay? And we don't celebrate the disease. Both of these are wrong, so what is the solution? Do what our Lord did. Transfiguration. Okay, this is what we look at in our spiritual lives. The proper thing to do is not to scare people, shame people in their conditions, whether it's physical or spiritual. 
right? Our job as Christians is to love them unconditionally and to help them in whatever way that we are able to do. A person should not be afraid to say that they have a disease because they should believe that the church is a hospital open to all. They should, right? Because we suck, sorry, collectively, this is like often not the case, but this is what we are supposed to be. They should not be afraid to come in and say, I am in need of healing. I might struggle with the disease my whole life, but I am here at least because I have the goodwill to try. Rather than yell at a patient for being a patient, um, no matter what has caused the illness, we should learn how to treat the patient, support the patient, and bring him closer to the true physician or her. If the person wants to be healed, then let him or her come and receive treatment, even if it means, as we said, lifelong treatment, just like there are people who are not healed in the time of Christ. And even those who were healed died. Okay, there's still an end to them. So, we're all in treatment. We need to recognize that. All of us are in treatment. All of us are diseased. Name whatever spiritual illness you have, all of them lead to death. So we are all at church because we need the remedy. We are not in church because we're righteous. If you guys are, then like glory be to you. But like the majority of us are here because we need it. If a person refuses treatment, respect his or her free will, just like God does. Okay, God gives us total free will about whether or not we want him, whether we want to accept him, whether we want to deal with him. So if they choose, if there's a homosexual person struggling and chooses that they don't believe this or they don't like it or they're not convinced or whatever, that's fine. That's their free will. We have to present the right teaching on it, but it is totally up to them about whether or not they would like to participate in this or not. Because as we said, all of us have a disease or an illness. Um, and when we have them, there's no point in saying, well... It's my wish or right or desire to have such and such. Unfortunately, what we've done to ourselves as a global community has made certain things impossible for us, like the way that we've culturally come to things. A blind person can't demand the right to see. As much as we wish that we could, they can't demand the right to see. They were born this way and it's terrible, but they can't say, you have to make me see. Unfortunately, we don't have the ability to do that yet. If we had the ability, then yes, make that demand. Right? Like if there was a solution, absolutely, then, then yes, we do have obligations towards one another. But if we don't yet have the solution, which we don't, right? This is something we're facing more than we used to, then um, there's not much we can do in that sense in terms of the demand of immediate healing. What we can do though is empathize and sympathize with that person and accompany them in their struggle. Become their eyes for them, right? Being that person who walks with them. The blind person may, as a result of their their condition, learn how to hear ridiculously well, right? And may now be able to use that gift to aid the rest of society too, because our gifts and weaknesses are all together as a community. He might develop his mind more, but he cannot waste his life wallowing in what ails him, okay? The minute we delve into self-pity, that is not a solution, okay? If we get into that sense of entitlement and I feel so badly and it sucks to be me and woe is me, you will never have joy, never. Society can become his eyes for him, and he can become our ears, our mind. So the solution is to take our humanity, accept it, okay, as it is, with all of his blemishes, all its weaknesses, and be transfigured. Okay, we need to do as the Lord did. He embraced humanity and all of its weaknesses and all of its frailty and all of its shortcomings and glorified it. This is what we celebrate in the transfiguration. This is what we celebrate in our baptisms. He took our weaknesses, transformed them. If we want to be transfigured, 
However, we must take the way of the cross. That is, that is the solution for us, is to take the way of the cross, all of us. The cross was shameful and disgusting, but the Lord took it, carried it, transformed it. The weakness became his glory, weakness became might, death became life. And glory to God forever. Amen. Any questions, comments, criticisms? I'm a pharmacist, so we deal with a lot of these patients, especially at one particular location where the main focus and aim is to serve them, medicinally at least. Yeah. The problem then comes up that I've, I haven't really had to confront, but the whole idea of putting our name as a company in support whenever there's a pride walk or anything homosexually celebrating, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. So, where do we put the line of recognizing and helping as, as much as we can, but not crossing it to the point of saying we support your, you celebrating this? Right. You need to help them as a pharmacist, I was a pharmacist, um, in the biological way as much as possible. When it comes to company policy, you have various choices. One is, if you know that there's companies that don't, right, is making a bold decision, like, saying, well, I'm going to work for the ones that don't, like, who, like, where that might require sacrifice on your part, might require less salary, right, because maybe they're, they're hated or, or whatnot. I would also say, and this depends on what kind of risk you're willing to take, I mean, I'm not a big social activist, but I'm not totally against it either. I just, it's not my thing, it's not my calling. Um, but there might be something worth saying, who do you represent when you make these statements? Like, do you, like, like to the company, are you representing like the board of directors? Um, or are you supposed to be representing your staff? Because like, there, are, there are staff members of yours who, who do not. Um, so just can you please articulate what it means to support like that might be worth doing um, I know somebody I know a teacher who did that because their their district their board district was doing that and He's like well actually I'm totally against this and I don't agree with you and you said that this is something about the teachers I'm a teacher and I disagree and you never asked me mm-hmm. Right like you never had a vote that said where do you stand on this the majority do and now we're doing it So I don't know how you feel about that. I'm not sure where I, where I would have um but this is, and that's a whole other, I think, lecture topic, is where do we as Christians become active or not? Because of that whole nature aspect, or nurture aspect, sorry. Because in a way we're, we're participating in nurture by never saying anything about these walks that our companies and our, and our people are, are doing. Um, do you have insight on that? I'm not sure when the right time is to speak and when not. Like I haven't 
Canada is as liberal as we were as Canadians, to be quite honest. We, we, this wasn't an issue for us. And we legalized homosexual marriage. Like, same-sex marriage in Canada is it's old. It's like 20, like 15, 20 years now. Like, so it's not new. Like, so it wasn't even an issue for us. It wasn't even a problem at work. Like, that's when, like, it was bizarre to me here to see it unfold that way. Um, so, but what Canada did well was simply just say whatever. It's, just, it's a legal thing and that's it. Like, there was no companies lobbying and there was no, like, like Pride Whopper or whatever it is that they had going. So if there's stuff that you feel comfortable with that is in a way that you can speak the truth um, with wisdom, right? Because, like, you also need to worry about other things. I do think God will bless, right? But it's a matter of whether you also have the calling for social activism or not. Like, I look at someone like Henry, Henry Nouwen of the Catholic Church, um, who's very orthodox, um, but he felt that as his calling. So he could give up everything for that cause, right? So that nobody could affect him. But if you don't have that calling, then you have to see what are you ready to handle as the consequence right. of speaking. ties into your last point. Um, you were saying that obviously we as a, as a community that need to come alongside people and support them um, in their healing. And you mentioned that oftentimes we don't do that. So in the interim, when that often isn't the case, when that isn't the reality, especially on the parish level, what are we supposed to be expecting people to do? Send them where they can. Right? Like, when I'm talking to youth, like I've dealt with many people in our diocese who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, like, I won't send them to a church where I, I know that they're not going to be well-received, right? I'm not going to send them somewhere to a priest who I know, this is being recorded, might not um, be able to deal with them very well. Maybe they are stuck on, there's no biology, this is totally your choice, right? And alienate the person, right? So, like, we have to be wise in who and where we send them to. Um, if there's like a, a, a mission group like devoted to this, even even better, right? Like, but it's to meet the person where they're at. Like for me, for example, when someone comes to me, I tell them, listen, I'm your friend on this journey, no matter where you're at. If you fall off the wagon and you're doing this, like this becomes your lifestyle, I'll still be your friend. I won't agree with you, okay? But I'm going to be your friend. If you become atheist, I'll still be your friend. And I was like, but it's up to you whether you want to respond to me or not, okay? And what we do. When they're like, okay, well, what am I going to do about this? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to try and figure it out together because they have different callings. I know one person, for example, that's in med school, and he was talking about how perhaps for him, and I didn't suggest this to him, like he was saying, well, maybe um, he goes, I could be one of those physicians devoted to traveling the world on missions doing this stuff because most people, once they're married, like they don't have time for that anymore. They can't go. And he goes, well, I could be the guy who could keep going. I'm like, awesome. Like, why, why not? Like, that's phenomenal. Right? But we also have to understand that the hypersexualization of society isn't, doesn't help because we've made humanity's existence to be only sexual, right? When it's really just one facet of the person, it is not the whole of their being, right? There's so much more to their life than their sexual orientation. Um, and so, like, helping them discover that. So, in the meantime, is be educated, right, on it and understanding it so that you can give a listening ear without condemnation, but without also pretending to agree with something we don't agree with. Um, maybe finding out what resources are available in the local community, right? Like, to me, if there is, I'm not going to lie, if I find that there's no orthodox 
um, help in the area, but there's a good Protestant one, I'll send him, right? I will work with him to make sure that the faith that he receives is sound, right? But I'll be happy if they're helping him out. I won't be upset, right? We have to acknowledge where we might sometimes lack. If there's an Orthodox one, even better. Whether it's Eastern or Oriental, I don't care, right? Like, let them get help. Um, so, like, we need to get beyond that and to respond to them at whatever level that they're, they're at at that time. What do you suggest um, a parish priest should do at, at the parish level? Because I think that you know the, the the problem that we face, and it's not just within Orthodox communities, but I think in this society at large, is that the homosexual in particular is hypersexualized, mm-hmm. right, and is only seen in that way. Right. I mean, for for whatever reason, I'm sure there's a there's a history and so on to this, but mm-hmm. but we know this, right? I mean, typically a person hears that so and so is homosexual and they immediately sexualize them, right? They just see that their entire being is one of having sex, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to be very explicit yeah. about it, that's I that's think the way lot, lots of people see it, uh, not only in the or of course in the society at large, but also in our parishes. Right, so when we're making a call for having support for people, mm-hmm. ideally it should be happening at a parish level, right? That people should be coming into the church and finding some support. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, the the possibilities, and I know you're you're aware of this, but you haven't addressed it, is is to think about groups of people that support one another in, in celibacy, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's not, and that, that isn't just for people who might be struggling with same-sex attraction. I mean, you have young men and women who are uh, maybe considering marriage but not yet married and living in a hypersexualized society who, uh, as far as our church is concerned, ought to be uh, living a, a chaste and celibate life until they're married, if they get married. And then right. we have people who, frankly, don't want to get married, right? Mm-hmm. But they also don't want to be monastics, and not everyone is called to that. I mean, you can, exactly. that can be the, the end of you if, you if you take that route when it's not your calling, as you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder if you have any suggestions or, or ideas. I think it's on And I, just I, to add, I mean, I... You know, when I get couples coming who are even engaged to get married and I find out that they're living together, I tell them that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I'm very point blank about this. Like, if you want to continue to, to not to come to the parish, you're, the doors are open, right? Mm-hmm. But if you actually want to be on a, on a track moving towards marriage in the Orthodox Church and you want me to be a part of that, then you can't live together, mm-hmm. right? And, and you'll have to figure out some arrangement, um, you know, I don't care, right? I mean, if you need financial help, we'll work it out, whatever, but but you, you cannot be living together. So it's not just a homosexual issue, right? No, it's, it's not. We have to deal with the new issues in general. But I think it starts off if the parish priest is a good teacher. Um, like, the teacher can instills, like, the, the character of the priest defines the character of the church, really, at the end of the day. So if, unless the, the priest is randomly sent somewhere where the congregation already exists, then it's different. But... I think in speaking about it, like of of what the proper teaching is, enough that the people know that there's something different about it because that in itself, like is what like one person reached out to me that I had met once in my life, 
like once, right? And it was just for some reason, I think that topic came up or something happened where they felt there was an approachability, right? And that was all it took. So when there's a, if there's a proper teaching, then they're like, I feel safe around that person. Like, I'm not worried that this person is going to do, like, embarrass me or humiliate me or cast me out or, or what have you. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing that the, that the priest can do because then I think he should simply react to the different cases because it might be somebody who doesn't want to be open about it um, and just says, no, I, I want to live my life, I just want to be okay, right? Or know that I'm, I'm acceptable before God and before men and before everything. So I think number one is that the priest needs to be educated. I do think where there are sufficient people with similar struggles, I'm not saying just homosexual, then yes, support groups would be good for those who are willing, right, without putting them at risk. Because if you're in, um, pardon the expression, a fob church, okay, where, like, um, you have, like, 10 very American people struggling with this, and then the Egyptians or the father be like, what are these people, like, be, like and they're going to look down upon them, then we've done damage to them, right? It could be a, a quiet group. But... I think it would start, I really do think the most important place is the pulpit um, in teaching that compassion and love and about acceptance of everybody and not of the, not of the wrongness, but of the people, right? Like as being the, the main message. And that by itself, I think would, would evolve. We're going to face it more and more. Like, so we're, we're going to, we're going to have to. But I agree with your point, though, because celibacy shouldn't be practiced alone. Like, like men should live in community. That's why even the monastics must originally live in a community. They're not allowed to become hermits right away. They must live in community. And they can never become a hermit because they don't like the community, right? <laughs> they have to become, like, like, they have to grow in it, love them, be loved. And then they are allowed, because the whole community testifies of their sanctity, Say, we give our blessings for you to go off on your own. That's why Pope Corliss couldn't go until the community of the monks at Baramo said, you can go. Like, and it was a struggle for him because he really, really wanted to and they liked him. Like, no, no, stay. Right? But, like, it should be, it should be that. So I think maybe that's something to look for. I also think Pope Francis has been wonderful for this cause. Like, to be honest, he's often manipulated in the media of what he's actually saying. But if you read his full interviews, I have not read a single thing of his that I disagree with. Um, like he's been very, very good, but the media always tries to turn it off. And one, one sentence that he said that struck me that I loved was saying, we need to show and teach people how to find their callings within whatever context that is that they have. So how do I, like as a homosexual, it sounds like I'm saying I'm gay, how does one as a homosexual Christian find his or her calling within the church? I think that's the real question, is what are those options, right? What are the options for celibacy? What are the options for service? Because... Um, some people will be like, oh, a homosexual should never become a monk or, or a nun. I'm like, that's not true. Because maybe that is their calling. And in the same way that a, a normal, quote-unquote, heterosexual might have received an external calling towards this, why could not also the homosexual? Obviously, it'll be a different challenge for that person, but we cannot say they're never called. Maybe they are. Like, maybe we need to look at, like, Christ's verse about um, some people were born eunuchs, right? We talk about those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God that maybe we should look at those who were born eunuchs um, with no say and how do they they function. I just, sorry, it's a long answer with very little content, but I think the pulpit and us actually sitting down together and saying, what can we do so that we're already prepared when they come as opposed to being like, 
uh, I'll send you to LA, I'll send you to whoever. Yeah. But then I, I, I guess one big task is to prepare our congregations and our communities to be open and loving and warm and welcoming, which of course we want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's a, it can be a real challenge. Yeah, and that's where the priest has to exercise discernment with who the congregation is, yeah. right? Because if it's one where it will do more damage, right? Or you find that, like, I guess it would be good to test the waters by simply giving a talk about it, right? And seeing, like, the reaction. Are the people very resistant? Are they very, very angry, right? Because if they are, you know, right off the bat, no, I'm not going to take this route. I'm going to do this quietly, like, in this parish. Whereas, like, HRC, when I was in L.A., I, I don't think anybody would have had a problem, right? Like, like at all. Like, tell people uh, Holy Resurrection, it's, it's, it's exactly like here. It's an American Coptic Orthodox Church. Um, I don't think the people would have had an issue. So I wouldn't have had a problem doing that there because of their culture. St. Mark's, absolutely there'd be a problem, right? Like, so we have to be aware of who our people are and where they are at so that we don't cause scandal to either party, right? Either the people or to the, the person. Because someone can manipulate it and say, oh, you're saying that it's okay now, right? Even though you, must, you might have said like 12 times, I'm not saying this, and they'll still be like, you said this, right? So we have to be wise for the sake of peace. God help us. Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's what I pray. Amen, Maranatha. Like, really, God help our little kids, like, what society that they're in and how confused they must be, right? They're given books about Sammy and his two dads and Emily, like, and whoever and their two moms, and they're, they're told if you think this isn't right that there's messed up. My nephew, my nephew in Canada went home, and I think it was that issue, there was something like that that they brought up that they were taught. Um, and so my brother-in-law, like, jokingly, was like, oh, Cyril, he's like, who, who are you going to listen to, your teacher, your daddy? And he goes, my teacher. And it was, like, <laughs> so natural. <laughs> it was, like, obviously, right? But that's his reality. It's the truth to this child. So we need to, we need to do so many things. I think we also need to have schools. Like, if, if homeschooling is an option, then maybe we should find small schools, to serve the local community that can be for all Christians, not just Orthodox Christians. Like, is having alternatives to counter the nurture that's destructive. Like, I used to be totally anti-homeschooling. Now I'm like, yes, everyone go homeschool, go ask Winnipeeman how to homeschool. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's rough. Any other thoughts or questions or comments? Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Thank you.